This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. With great power comes great responsibility. Compromise where you can. Where you can't, don't. Even if everyone is telling you that something wrong is something right. Even if the whole world is telling you to move. It is your duty to plant yourself like a tree. Look them in the eye and say no. You move. Never step onto the battlefield of ideas unprepared. Before you enter the fray, you need a plan. And there's no better place to get one than right here on Tactics with host Caleb Colquitt. The Situation Room goes live now on News Radio 1440. Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics on this Thursday evening where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thank you so much for being with us on the program. I know that we're not actually on the terrestrial signal right now, which is a shame, and we're trying to get that corrected, working with News Radio 1440 to get us back on the air, you know, budget issues, but what are you going to do? But even though we're not on the terrestrial signal, we are more than happy to be here with you on the internet and to be able to bring this program to you. And part of our responsibility for doing that is, and this is just something I kind of feel a personal obligation to do because I do think that it's still important, that we give you your Alabama coronavirus update. So we'll go ahead and do that right now. So just to uh, give you a quick look over the numbers Currently, the state of Alabama has 112,794 confirmed cases, 900, oh, whoop, I, I got that number wrong there, uh, 1,990 deaths and 14,005 hospitalizations. And it is also important to note that the fatality rate has continued its downward trend. It has now dropped from 1.79 from last week to point. Six, uh, seven, six percent this week. Now, realistically, adjusting for the CDC's estimate that approximately 10 times as many people have it as we currently believe have it, then that means the real figure is probably about 0.176, which means that it's still uh, about 76 percent more deadly than the virus. But it, that, you know, that's not even a 100 uh, percent increase. That's not even a doubling of the uh, the flu. So, if you're looking at the flu, which is 0.1% flat, and then the coronavirus death rate, or the fatality rate that we're looking at now, 0.176, still significantly more dangerous than the flu by a measure of 76, a 76% increase, but certainly nowhere near the, you know, some of the early estimates that we're estimating anywhere as high as a 1% or a 2% fatality rate. And... It's important to note, too, that the fatality rate is falling, but it's not falling by much. I mean, we only moved three, no, uh, I take that back. We only moved 0.3 percentage points from last week to this week. That's for a number of reasons, but the fact that we actually have falling cases is probably a contributing factor to that because our deaths continue to go down, and that's what's been so far driving the decrease in the fatality rate along with an increase in cases. But the fact that our deaths are decreasing now, but our cases are also decreasing is the reason that it's going down. It's not going down as fast as we've been accustomed to the fatality rate dropping. But I mean, that's a very, very minute difference this week to last week. 
that part of the reason for that much more minute, much more muted decrease is because our cases are actually starting to come down now, and that does make a pretty significant difference in this particular statistic. Now, whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing, that's somewhat open to interpretation, but the fact that the fatality rate is going down, that's always good. It's just the, the decrease in cases is causing it to not go down as quickly as we've sort of become accustomed to. So let's go ahead and dig into some of the numbers from the Alabama Department of Public Health. So let's go ahead and bring this one up. So we're going to look at just overall cases here. And in Alabama, the new coronavirus cases... Okay, I don't know why that's... Hang on. There we go. Sorry, don't know what happened there. So the seven-day average for this week, so the 20th through the 27th, is 759. That's the seven-day average, how many cases we are averaging, new cases we are averaging over this week-long period. If you're looking at the one for last week, that comes to 855 which is a decrease, as you may have noticed, and it is a decrease of 96. So actually, a again, kind of like the fatality rate, a decrease, a more muted decrease than we have been accustomed to seeing the past couple of weeks, Because, and we'll actually look back at some of these charts in a minute, and I'll explain why. We have been seeing decreases, but we've, we've become somewhat accustomed we have become somewhat accustomed to decreases of a larger size, and, and that's so we are on a downward trajectory, but that downward trajectory is, is not halted, but certainly not where it was. This week was a, a decrease, but not to the level that we're kind of accustomed to seeing. And there's a number of different reasons for that, but part of it may be I don't think that this is the entire explanation, but part of it is the law of diminishing returns. So that's just a mathematical certainty in just about all cases. So if you're trying to whittle something down to zero, then, of course, the closer you get to zero, the closer you, you get to reaching that goal, the more difficult it will be to approach that in most cases. Now think about it this way. When you try to lose weight, if you're a 400-pound person, you can drop 50 pounds pretty quickly. If you're... 250 pounds, it's pretty hard to drop 50 pounds. Dropping 50 pounds is going to be a chore, especially depending upon your body type. And so if that's the case, then you can see how the closer you reach to zero, and if you were 120 pounds, dropping 50 pounds is impossible. I mean, you, you just can't do it. And so that's kind of a similar thing that we're seeing. I know that that's a crude example, but uh, when you have that law of diminishing returns, the lower you get, the harder it is to get lower. And so that's part of what you're seeing there. So let's go ahead and look at the monthly cases. So you can see the 28-day average for this month. And remember that the mask mandate has been in place since, well, now it's been in place since the 16th. So that's about a month and a half. You see that the seven-day, sorry, the 28-day average for us is 1,046. The 28-day average for the period directly before the mask mandate went into effect, which would be the uh, June the 18th through July the 16th, so this is before the mask mandate went into effect, is 1,156. So you will see, and this is the second coronavirus update in the row that this has been true, that there is actually a decrease in the uh, since the mask mandate has been put into effect 
Now, I'll explain why that may not be as cut and dry as you may think it is, but it is a decrease of 110. So we're pretty close to about the same level as we were. We, we finally broke the threshold for the first time since the mask mandate has been put into place. We finally broke the threshold last week of it moving from being just, uh, from it actually being higher since uh, in the time before the mask mandate, we finally broke that threshold to where it was finally actually lower last week in our last week's update, and that trend continues now. It's not a gigantic drop, but, you know, 110 less cases per day is also nothing to sneeze at. So let's go ahead and look at the hospitalizations because that's an even more important statistic. So the hospitalizations in the state of Alabama, you can see the seven-day average for this week, 113. The seven-day average for the previous week, 132. So still a drop, a decrease of 19. That is a very negligible drop. So the fact that we have gone down 19 still pretty good. And frankly, if we were looking at a drop of 19 in hospitalization several weeks ago when we were, you know, floating somewhere around, and, and granted, the rubric for counting hospitalizations was significantly different then. But if you were to look back at that drop back when we were looking at hospitalizations being in the 30s and 40s every day, 19 would have been a massive decrease. Uh, it's still a significant one. I mean, that that's still... Uh, you know, somewhere north of a 10% decrease, I believe. Yeah, it'd be slightly north of a 10% decrease. So still important, but not necessarily what how as important as it would have been if we were giving this account when the numbers were slightly smaller. So let's go ahead and look at the hospitalizations and the 14-day the averages. So this is August 13th through August 27th today then you can see that that average is 122. And then the previous 14-day average, 159. So if you look at the 14-day averages, we have made a significant decrease. I'm looking at the 14-day averages primarily because since we changed the rubric on hospitalizations, there's not you can't really go very far back in time, and it's just not a fair rubric. You'd be measuring with a completely different measuring stick. But that is a decrease of 37, and so the fact that we are seeing a decrease in hospitalizations and we saw a decrease in cases last week with more or less a stagnation in hospitalizations, that is to be expected, that if you see a decrease in cases, that about a week later, you're going to see a decrease in hospitalizations as well. So let's look at the most important stat, the, the one that ultimately is, is kind of the only one that matters because we moved so far past the flatten the curve goal. We're so far past that at this point that really, just being realistic here, we've moved so far past that now that the hospitalizations matters. It's not to say that we shouldn't be monitoring it or whatever, but we're so far away from the point to where our hospitals would be overflowing or be at a loss for resources that the hospitalizations, it's not that it's unimportant, but we're so far away from the danger zone that it's almost not worth monitoring. The deaths are a different story because, of course, every death, that's permanent and that's a loss of life. And so, of course, we're going to be more focused on that one. And that's the way that it should be. So looking at the deaths, you can see that the seven-day average for this week is 12.1. The seven-day average for last week, 12. So that's a difference. Uh, that, that's Sorry, that's an increase 
of 0 0.1. I mean, that's basically the same thing. So our deaths are virtually in the same spot that they were. Now, what you need to be on the lookout for, what you need to watch out for this upcoming week is you'll notice that we saw decreasing cases about two weeks ago. We're seeing a decrease in hospitalizations this week that just now started to manifest. I think that there was actually technically a decrease in hospitalizations last week, too, if memory serves, but it was so close that it was it was basically a negligible difference. The hospitalizations were, the, the averages were basically identical. And then, if you look at deaths, we were seeing about the same rate of deaths. We should see a decrease if that pattern follows the way that it usually does. We should see a decrease in deaths next week if that is truly the case. Let's hope and pray, of course, that that happens. We, you know, of course, it's, it's tragic to lose any life uh, anywhere in the state of Alabama or, you know, worldwide to this disease. But luckily, that is on a downward trend now. So that being said, let's go ahead and look at the monthly averages. So the 28-day average for the current month that we're in, since the mask mandate, of course, has been started now for a month and a half, this would fall into that category. That is 16.9. The 28-day average for the period directly before the mask mandate was put into effect, 14.3. So we actually are still on an increase of deaths. Now, it is important to note, and I'm doing this comparison just to show that it's having no effect, but... The truth is, no, um, oh, I actually have my increase wrong there. Uh, that would be an increase of 2.3, not 5.3, so that's a little typo there, but the increase of 2.3. So it, there, there's a significant amount of, of increase, especially when you're dealing with numbers this low. A 2.3 increase is not an insignificant factor, but it is important to note that I don't think that the mask mandate is causing it, obviously, but I don't think that it's really having an effect one way or the other, because remember that primarily what the mask is doing is preventing spread. It, it you know, the, the virus isn't magically worse if you weren't wearing a mask or, or violently worse if, it, if you were. Like the, the virus doesn't tell the difference. Once you're infected, you're infected and it's going to affect you how it's going to affect you, regardless of whether or not you wore the mask or not. And so that's obviously not what I'm suggesting. So the only thing there that is pertinent is how the, when it comes to the mask mandate, is how it affects the rates of infection and whether or not those rates translate to an increase in deaths. Because if we were to just, you know, for the sake of argument, um, living in a hypothetical here, if we were to just, you know, multiply the rate of coronavirus and double it, well, that would necessarily increase our deaths. And so the mask mandate could make a difference there, but overall, I understand that it's going to be significantly less reactionary to any mandate, whether it's effective or not, than the infection rate is. And so that's something you just need to be aware of. But overall, I mean, it's not insignificant to note that we're certainly not seeing a decrease in deaths as a result of the mandate. I think that that is a fair characterization of that. I don't think that it's causing it the increase or anything. It's just since that has happened, we have not seen a, re seen a reduction in deaths, even though we are just now starting to see a reduction in cases significantly later than you would expect if, if it were actually the result of that. So 
It's important to know as well, since we're talking about policy and, and government and mandates, Governor Ivey actually announced today, she had a press conference, that she will be extending the orders to August the 2nd. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that they were originally set to expire on August the 31st. And so since that deadline, of course, is coming up and, it, you know, it's, it's the, uh, the 27th, then they needed to go ahead and, and make a decision on that. And Governor Ivey, of course, decided to not let them expire. Those will be extended to the second, and that includes uh, October the second. And that includes, of course, the mask mandate along with that. Now, some people are going to say, well, Caleb, doesn't the numbers and, and some of the trends that we are seeing prove that the mask mandate actually was effective because you have seen and you just showed in your stats that the cases are going down. Well, no, and there's a couple of reasons for that. Our raw numbers, just looking at the, the numbers and looking at our uh, the, the numbers of new cases that we were getting per day, they peaked on July the 23rd, which is a full week after July 16th. Actually, it's a, a yeah, it'd be a little bit more than that. So, yeah, that actually takes place after that happens. And so that's when we hit our peak. And, you know, this virus, we should have seen effects of the mask. If, if masks were a very effective way to handle this, we would have been seeing the effects of the mask significantly before then, maybe within the span of a few days. I think it's probably safe to give it a little bit more grace than that, uh, maybe four or five days. But the fact that we actually hit our peak after the mandate went into effect does you know, speak to that. We have been in a downward trend since, since then, and that's important to acknowledge it. But the most important thing to do is not actually to look at the spikes. I mean, where we spiked is important. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that that's insignificant either. But it's most important to look at the averages because that gives you a better idea of how we're doing overall as opposed to looking at things that could be an isolated event. For example, let's say we just have a giant influx of cases and we have 10 times the amount that we normally do tomorrow, and then immediately after it, it drops down to our normal rate. Well, that should be factored in the statistics, sure, but that is an isolated event, and so averaging that out is going to give us a more realistic look at where we actually are and how well we're actually doing in the state, and that's the reason that for a very long time now, I haven't really been showing you the overall numbers or the, the raw graphs I've been showing you, the averages, because it's, it's more indicative, and, and frankly, at this rate, because the graphs have gotten so long, you can tell more from the, looking at the averages and comparing them, trying to make an apples-to-apples -apples comparison. And the problem with the narrative that the mask mandate somehow made this, uh, affected this really, really big change, it kind of falls apart when you look at the averages. So let's go ahead and look at some of the averages, and these are ones that I actually featured on past episodes. I went directly to episodes that were taking place when they were happening and pulled these slides directly from them. So you can see here, this is one that came from my August the 6th episode, and you can see the 21-day average, because it had been 21 days since the mandate was put into effect. The 21-day average, since we had put the mask into effect, was a little over 1,500. The previous 21-day average before the mask was uh, the mask mandate was put into effect was actually lower at just barely over 1,300, and that was an increase since the mask mandate had been put into effect of nearly 300, 278 to be more precise. Now, let's skip ahead 
to August the 13th. If you look at that episode, you can see the 28-day averages, because, of course, that had been how long it had been since the mandate was put into effect on July 16th. The 28-day average was... 1,476, the 28-day average before the mask mandate was put into effect was, again, 1,156. That is an increase of 320. And so when you're looking at the averages, instead of looking at just the immediate period right before the mandate was put into effect, if you're looking at the overall averages and making a comparison there, I mean, there's really just no question at that point, just so far as I can tell, the averages did not start looking better until the episode after this, in other words, last week's episode on the 20th. That's the first time that we actually did see a decrease in that. So I, that, that's the reason that I'm so skeptical of this idea that we can, we can definitively prove because we're in a downward trend that, well, we we're in a downward trend. It must be the mask mandate. Well, that didn't manifest itself until way after it should have if the mask mandate was all that effective. And there's another reason that I don't necessarily buy into that narrative. And it's because we have neighbors that don't have mask mandates. And by neighbors, I mean states that border us. Alabama has a mask mandate, and so does the state of Mississippi. But the states of Tennessee, Georgia, and Florida do not. They have never had a mask mandate. Those have never been put into effect. Now, whether or not masks are effective, and that's the thing that I, I get all kinds of flack for. I'm not saying that this definitively proved that masks are not effective. I'm saying that legally requiring masks does not make a difference. And by the way, there's other data that suggests that there is a difference in a mask, uh, people wearing masks voluntarily, and a mask mandate. And that difference is because the vast majority of people according to a national survey, were masking up before their state issued one. And there were an awful lot of people in states that had mask mandates that still refused to wear them. Which goes back to sort of a libertarian principle that I've had for a very long time, which is the government can mandate whatever it wants. By and large, especially when it comes to something like this that's impossible to police or enforce, according to Governor Ivey's own words, actually, ironically, ultimately, they can't control them. And so maybe masks are effective. Maybe they really did help stop the spread. Maybe they are the reason that we're in a downward trend. I kind of doubt that based on the data that I've seen, and especially when you consider that we actually started masking before uh, the mandate went into effect, which the, the numbers do suggest that as well. So I doubt, you know, I, I'm, the, the science is still a giant question mark on how effective masks are. However, when you're looking at mask mandates, none of the evidence points to the idea that it is actually causing this to go down because we have three states that had no mandate. Three states that had absolutely no mandate at all and still to this day don't. And yet we can do a pretty good comparison here of what they look like. So let's go ahead and look at our neighbors. You'll notice there on this chart that we've got over there in the top left, Alabama, and then Florida, and Georgia, and Tennessee. All from the same site. They're using the same rubric. You can see that blue line there are the seven-day averages. That's sort of the rolling averages, so they update them, and that, that just shows a trajectory. 
You'll notice that there's some minor differences, but they all pretty much look alike. They all look more or less exactly the same as the Alabama chart. And in fact, if you're comparing them and looking at these charts, the one that looks the best is Florida. Now, obviously, our peaks and valleys are a little bigger than the other three because we have a smaller population than the other three states featured here. But those charts all look more or less the same, and the one that's actually doing the best in reducing its numbers is Florida, which has never had a mask mandate. Now, there are some places in Florida where, you know, in local cities there may be some mask mandates. But in Georgia, they're actually illegal. You can't enact a local mask mandate. Now, I disagree with that because I'm a, a fan of local control, even though I don't like mask mandates. I still think cities should control their own destiny on that. But the point in all of this is the idea that a, a mask mandate is this magic panacea that causes the numbers to drop dramatically. Well, if that's the case, then why is it that Alabama has a dip and then actually goes up a little bit there at the end when you're looking at our daily cases and our seven-day averages. Uh, I hope that that's a trend that does not continue. But actually, you see a little bit of an increase there from Alabama, and that is not the case in the three other states. If that's the X factor, if that's the determinant that is causing the, the numbers to go down, then why is it the three states that don't have that have graphs that look pretty much exactly the same as ours? That just simply does not make sense if you're trying to isolate that as the catalyst that is causing this to take place. And by the way, looking at those graphs, you can also tell, and uh, you probably couldn't tell because of how small they are on your screen, but you remember that I told you that we peaked, that Alabama's peak was on July the 23rd? Well, uh, we peaked on the 23rd, Georgia peaked on the 24th. So if the, the measure is a downward trajectory, well... Georgia's been on a downward trajectory exactly the same amount of time that we have. And the other two states that were pictured there, Tennessee, they hit their peak on the 13th and have been in a downward trajectory ever since. And Florida hit their peak on the 12th and have also been in a downward trajectory ever since. And so again, two other they actually hit their peak earlier and started in a downward trend before we did, about a week before we did despite the fact that they didn't have a mask mandate. And so it just, frankly, the, the argument that somehow the mask mandate is causing these numbers to drop, that simply doesn't make sense when you're looking at other states that don't have a similar policy and yet have a very similar trajectory on their cases. I think that what happened is we are seeing a natural downward trend that would have happened whether we put the mask on or not, and our neighbors to the north east, and south display that pretty darn well. Now, uh, look at, to sort of further illustrate this point, let's go ahead and look at the, and this is the same website, Worldometers, let's check out the top 10 for uh, cases based on population. And I think that we actually looked at this figure next week. You'll notice there that several of the numbers on the total cases are highlighted, that's because each of the ones that are highlighted are states that do not have mask mandates. So on this top 10, Florida, Arizona, and then Georgia, South Carolina, and Tennessee. Those are the five states that don't have mask mandates. 
The other five do. And so you have an even number of ones that don't and ones that do on the top 10 states with the highest number of cases per population. This is adjusted for population, of course, because we want to compare fairly. So, again, why, how, how can you make the case that the mask mandates are making a huge difference? And since we're comparing Georgia, who has by far the loosest laws on the mask mandates, and it, where it's even illegal to make a local ordinance mandating masks, look at their average and look at our average when it comes to total cases per population. They're basically identical. In fact, I ran the numbers. There's a 0.3% difference in our numbers and Georgia's numbers when you're looking at total cases. And that's even more impressive when you remember that Georgia actually had a peak much earlier than us because of Atlanta and that they started out much higher than us on the list. We had to climb back. Now, again, I think there's several reasons that that could be, and I, I have a couple theories, but that's really beyond the scope of what we're talking about right now. But what my, I'd say that just to illustrate that Georgia started off behind the eight ball and we wound up catching up to them despite the fact that they didn't have a mask mandate and we did. So again, the idea that the mask mandate is trying is having some kind of major effect on uh, our cases is simply not truth. Here's the issue that I'm, I'm coming up against. Governor Ivey, if you want to extend this and put this order into place, the burden of proof is upon you. It's not incumbent upon me to prove that mask mandates do not work. It is incumbent upon you to prove that they do to justify extending them especially when you consider that the mandate still to this day is illegal. And yet, Governor Ivey has not done this. She has not explained how the mask mandate is effective and, and done state-by-state -state comparisons to show that they are. The numbers just simply don't back it up. She hasn't done it because she can't. Because if she were going to show you the numbers and show you the averages, and show you a, a, an actual meaningful measure of how effective the mask mandate is, the numbers simply do not bear out the idea that it is somehow this X factor that is causing the numbers to drop. We are in a decline, yes, but all signs point to that decline probably having happened regardless of whether there was a mandate in place or not. So that being said, there's actually quite a bit of other local news in regards to the virus. And uh, I think that it's a little bit more focused in this particular area when we're talking about colleges and universities in the state of Alabama because of a, a number of different factors and the emphasis that we put on college football. But this is something that is sort of going on all around the country. And so this is our version of it dealing with the, the two biggest universities in the state, Auburn and Alabama. So Auburn has actually launched an investigation, weirdly enough, into four bars that surround the Auburn campus. And in fact, uh, these four bars, Southeastern Sky Bar, 1716, and Moe's Original Barbecue, I've been to all of them at some point. Well, I say that. I don't think I've ever actually been inside Southeastern. But, I mean, you know, I don't drink, but... Moe's Barbecue, I've been there. We actually did trades with them back when I was working at the other Moe's, Moe's Southwestern Grill. We were, it was funny that we were right next to each other and had the same name, but served completely different dishes. But anyway, so, you know, 
I'm an Auburn alum. I know the area. I know these bars, even though I've, I've never, you know, frequented them. I've been in Sky Bar like two or three times, and that was just to hear the musician that was there. But they actually launched an investigation into private businesses, not the city of Auburn, the university. That bothers me. I may not really like the city of Auburn investigating it, but at least I understand that there is a governmental interest in checking it out. And of course, the rationale was, well, people aren't social distancing in the bar. Now, I think that the mayor of Auburn, because she was pressed on this earlier today and was asked about this, and she actually gave what I thought was a very legitimate, logical answer, which is, well, if we do close down the bars, then they're just going to be having big house parties. And she's right. Again, it goes back to the idea that government cannot control human beings. They can close things down. They can mandate that you do this or you don't do that. But ultimately, people are going to, by and large, do what they want to do. And when it comes to, you know, telling a bunch of college students that have just come back after being gone for six months, that are not allowed to get together in a party and have a drink with their friends... I'm sorry, that's not going to happen. Like, they're just not going to listen. I work with college students on a regular basis. Uh, I, you know, I'm not that far removed from college. I graduated back in 2013, but still lived in Auburn until 2015, 20, yeah, it would have been 2015. So, you know, this is not something that's, I, I know the culture, I know the town, I know these college students specifically, and, and the way, the atmosphere that's over there. That's a losing battle. You're not going to be able to do that. If you do shut down the bars, they will be having house parties in the apartments around Auburn's campus. That's just the way that it's going to be. Now, interestingly enough, two of these bars have actually preemptively shut down, Southeastern and 1716. Uh, they shouldn't have to, especially not now. But, you know, if they want to, and they're just worried about their own liability or something like that, you know, that, that's up to them. I mean, that's part of the free market, too. If they want to preemptively shut down because they believe it's going to be a problem, I don't think that they should have to do that. I don't think that they should be bullied into doing that or, or you know, worried about the press or whatever. But if they want to do that, that's their prerogative. That's part of the free market system as well. So Auburn University actually offered this uh, statement which was featured in AL.com about this. Auburn will investigate to determine next steps. See, this part worries me because if it were just observation, if they were just watching it, I, it still bothers me, but saying that they go are going to investigate to determine next steps suggests that it's not just observation. Then they continue on. Auburn's code of student conduct pertains to students on campus and situationally off campus. The code speaks to the utmost importance of health, safety, and welfare of students and can be applied to a student or organization's behavior involving health and safety wherever it occurs. The code notes that students should alert appropriate officials of any substantial information that a student's or student organization's presence on campus is potentially dangerous to the health of the university community. Yeah, well, the presence isn't on campus. That's the whole point of this. But anyway, Auburn also employs the use of health check screener. Yeah, that's, you know, just sort of a generic, this is what we're doing to cover our behind sort of statement. But you get the idea. They very much suggest in there that it's not just going to be observation, that there's going to be action taken after this. And they say that, well, our code of conduct extends to off campus. 
Now, this is almost not even necessarily connected to coronavirus and is, is just more of a, a theoretical sort of abstract question. When it comes to a state school like this, when we are talking about a publicly funded university, do we really want the school monitoring off-campus behavior? Now, if we're talking about Faulkner, which I work at, or Huntington, or other private organizations, okay, that's different. Because that is a private organization, many of which happen to be, in, in my case, Christian-based. There's a code of ethics that you are, suspect, you, you are expected to subscribe to, just like you would a club or an organization or something like that. And that organization has the right to not allow you to associate with them if you do violate those rules. It's completely different when we're talking about a taxpayer-funded university. This is something that is a public work. Do we really want public universities monitoring the behavior and moral decisions of adults. I mean, it would even be one thing if it were a high school, because at least then the child is in your care, they are a minor, they don't have the full rights of majority, and you're basically acting in lieu of the presence, at least at the time, until you the child is turned back over into the parent's care. That is not what's going on on a college campus. These are adults. They can vote, they can fight in a war, I mean, all of the stuff that goes with that, um, they can't drink, they should, I, you know, I, it boggles my mind, even though I don't even like alcohol, I've never even drank alcohol, it, it blows my mind that we have a rule that says a person can, can go fight in a war, but you can't partake in tobacco or alcohol, even though they're legal substances, but I'm not going to get off on that tangent right now. Suffice it to say, that what we're dealing with here are people that have reached the age of majority that we have said are old enough to make decisions, even important enough to be who's going to be the leader of our country or the leader of our state, uh, government at all levels, but they're not mature enough and, and they're not self-aware enough that we don't trust them, that we have to have the school treat them like children. That just by enrolling in school at Auburn University, they have forfeited their rights to privacy, they have forfeited their rights to make their own decisions and have their own autonomy and, and all of that. Why? This just really doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. It would be one thing if they were monitoring on-campus behavior. I mean, I like it, but I get it. Auburn has a right to do that. They have a right to, to, to cover their own behinds and also because you know it's it's the property of the university they have a right to monitor behavior that is going on on their campus i get that and i support auburn's right to do that but when we're talking about off-campus activities that have nothing to do with what goes on in the classroom i fail to see how auburn has an interest in doing that once they go off campus they're not the university's responsibility anymore and they're only sort of their responsibility when they're on campus because it is still a public university, of course. But, you know, a doctor friend of mine um, brought this up. And by the way, you know, she's absolutely brilliant and she's not only a medical professional, but she's thinking about this from the other side of it. And, and so these are completely legitimate concerns. And so I think she and I wound up disagreeing a little bit, but we both see where the other one's coming from. She said, but they've got to worry about liability issues. In other words... Auburn has to worry about what happens if a college student's behavior results in them getting the virus and dying, and then Auburn gets sued for that. Okay, I get that. And I also want to live in a world 
where Auburn can't be blamed for that. There is no liability to the university because a, a student made a dumb decision. But you can't expect Auburn to police that behavior. I mean, it's also theoretically possible that a person enrolled at Auburn could also just, you know, because of his own bad decisions, get drunk, get behind the wheel of a car, and run over somebody, all of that happening nowhere near campus. Is that Auburn's fault? No. That's off-campus behavior. That would be horrible, and it would be tragic, and I would, you know, really feel bad for the family of that person that wound up killing themselves because of their own dumb decisions. But nobody would think to blame Auburn. That's not Auburn's fault. How could you draw that line back? Now, unfortunately, there's probably some lawyers that would try to and try to sue Auburn because of that, and I understand that. That also should not be a thing. And so uh, I know that you have to deal with the hand that you're dealt, not the hand that you, you think should exist, but I think trying to tie that back to Auburn would be, you know, legally dicey at best. But even if they could, I mean, that's just not a world that's realistic or, or that we should be striving toward. That's one of the reasons that we really, really need to, uh, litigation really needs to be reformed in this country. But again, that's a discussion for a completely different time. So that brings us to what happened with the University of Alabama. So Alabama, there was a piece put out by CNN, and you can see here the headline from CNN. There we go. Okay. The University of Alabama reports over 500 COVID-19 cases less than a week after classes start. Now, here's the thing. That headline is factually true. There's nothing incorrect about it. And I read the article, and I didn't see any inaccuracies, per se, in the article itself. It mostly talked about the numbers, which have gone up. The problem is that just seeing that headline alone rips everything out of context. And part of that is CNN's fault, probably, because they really, really like this narrative. They love this narrative of a university in the heart of Trump country where people are literally having COVID parties, which is also kind of funny because in this pandemic, every party is a COVID party. <laughs> Let's just be real about that. Every single party that you have is a COVID party because you have no idea whether or not the people around you have it. So if you're having a party, it's a COVID party, whether you call it that or that's the intended purpose or not. But nonetheless, backtracking a little bit, it's clear that in this environment, CNN and they've, they've shown this before. They've shown it with the ridiculous hit piece that they did with the Orange Beach at the Gulf when they were having their reporter walk around with a mask on on a sunny day at the beach and then immediately take it off when he was off camera, which a whole bunch of spectators made note of or, or trying to make the case that, oh, these crazy Alabamians down in Trump country, the, the reddest state in the union, they're just they're all going to get themselves killed because they're not socially distancing correctly or wearing a mask and all this insanity that they tried to push. CNN loves this narrative that, uh, see, because of their, because, you know, CNN is the ultimate Karen, uh, see, because they're not wearing their mask and they're not socially distancing and they're getting these COVID parties, uh, their, their rates have skyrocketed at the University of Alabama. Um, duh. I don't know how else to describe it. Regardless of whether it was college students or not, regardless of whether they were having Corona parties or not. If you took any town and increased the population by two for any reason, and, and by two, I mean twofold, 
because the city of Auburn, I'm not sure exactly what the demographics are, but the population basically doubles when students come back to town. I mean, it, it's a completely different town in the summer because I've spent at least two or three summers in the city of Auburn. And you can go to restaurants, you can get a, a table like that. It's not a big deal. Uh, every, everywhere is empty because it's a college town. And Tuscaloosa is not quite as much of a college town as Auburn is. But it's darn close. They're both college towns that live and breathe and die with that university. And so because of that, if you drastically increase the population of anywhere in the middle of a pandemic, especially one where the, the virus and, and we've seen what it can do and how quickly it can spread if given the right conditions, of course they saw a drastic increase in a very short amount of time. Now, the one-week thing dramatizes it just a little bit because, as we all know, you don't move in the day of classes. You move in about a week beforehand. So if... Alabama, and I have a little insight just because I also work for a university in the state and we've been kind of monitoring what the other universities do. I have a little bit of insight into this. Students have been moving in for about two to three weeks now because they've been kind of trying to stagger it because of the virus. And so the fact that we're having 500, you know, a 500 case increase a week after classes is not really indicative of how quickly it's, it's moving because this has been building for about a month. And so that 500 person increase has been going for some time, but nobody really should be surprised by this is really the bottom. The bottom line here is that we should see an increase in cases and that shouldn't alarm anybody. And by the way, I will make a note. And though I hate, I hate to even bring this up. I don't know why I'm forcing myself to bring this up again. This actually proves that Nick Saban was right. I mean, I said he was right at the time, but it still leaves a bad taste in my mouth to admit that Nick Saban's right about anything because I'm such an Auburn guy. <sighs> but he was. He said that if these students, talking about his college, play, his college football players, the, the guys on his team, he said, look, they're not going to get the virus from football. We actually have a lower rate of them getting it than they do in the general public. If they get it, they're going to get it at classes. He, and everybody was just aghast and clutched their pearls. And AL.com was writing pieces like, oh, the state of Alabama, they care more about football than they do about school. Well, no, Coach Saban was right. And this proves it. that They were far less likely to get the virus from football than they were from school. So if we were going to do school, it didn't make sense to cancel football. And that was the point that Coach Saban was making, even though it was wildly mischaracterized and, and people just sort of uh, clutched their pearls and fanned themselves and couldn't believe that he would say that. What he was saying was accurate. The Alabama football team, by and large, I mean, there's been a handful of isolated cases. They haven't seen exponential spikes like this where you just see 500 cases out of basically nowhere. When classes started, that did happen because the general population students were there. So uh, ultimately, and when you're looking at this, uh, there was a statement in this same CNN article by Stuart Bell, who is the president of the University of Alabama. If I can go ahead and bring that up, there we go. Yeah, so this is the headline, or sorry, this is the uh, an excerpt from it where he makes his statement. It says, Bell urged social distancing, mask wearing, and limited gatherings. He said violators would be subject to possible suspension from school. So you can be suspended from school 
for not social distancing or not mask wearing. That's insane. And then he follows up with, quote, completing the fall semester is our goal, Bell said Sunday in an email to students. The margin of error is shrinking. Okay, that is the worst possible strategy that you could do. There's literally not a policy worse than that. For a university to bring all the students together to get a whole bunch of them infected, and because a whole bunch of them get infected, they decide, oh, we're just going to shut down and send everybody out. That disperses the virus. They are much, much safer if you do see an exponential growth in the number of people that get the virus to keep them there and quarantine them there. You don't send them out into the state. That just means the virus is going to spread more. You're the president of a school. You should know this. (laughs) But anyway, President Bell, uh, I mean, granted, it's not as bad as taking people that you know are COVID-19 positive and sending them into nursing homes like Governor Cuomo. Granted, it's not quite that level of depravity. But still, seriously, President Bell, this is your strategy. Uh, It's just... I can't, I can't even work with that level of ridiculousness. That's so incredibly stupid. So, are these students actually at risk? Because that's ultimately what matters here. Because everybody's freaking out about the increase in cases. Are they actually at risk? So, here's the thing. I ran some of the numbers, as I am wont to do. You guys know me. This is just who I am. I, I love running the numbers. I'm going to show you more graphs. I know that you can't wait to see more statistics. So here's the numbers and how they actually look. These are stats for people within the state of Alabama from the ages of 18 to 24. So pretty much the entirety of your college student demographic. The cases that we have for people in this age group currently are 15,445, which accounts for 13.92% of all cases in the state of Alabama. The deaths are four. Four deaths. 0.2% of all the deaths. And frankly, I had to round up to get that one. And by the way, that would mean that based on the number of people that have it versus the number of deaths, that the fatality rate for people in this age demographic for the coronavirus, this is the fatality rate for people that have the virus. Not overall, just the people that get the virus. Once you have the virus, this is your odds of dying from it, 0.026. That is 1 in 3,861. So, what some would call really, really good odds. Your odds of dying from the virus are incredibly tiny if you are in this particular age demographic. So let's go ahead and and look at this one. The total population in the state of Alabama for people ages 18 to 24. Now, I had to estimate a little bit on this one, but this is uh, the the best number that I could find based on the available statistics. 216,702 in this age demographic. So that would mean your current odds of dying from COVID-19, because remember the last stat we looked at was just your odds of dying if you got the virus. But your odds overall of dying from COVID-19 is 0.0018%. 
That is 1 in 54,196. So if you're in this age demographic, you can understand why you're not worried about dying from the virus. Now let's look at this. The total University of Alabama students. This is their student population, 38,563. The total students without antibodies, 33,195. Now, how did I get this stat? So what I did was I took the rate that the state of Alabama has, that figure that you saw earlier, which is 13.92. I took that and then because we can assume that the student population of the University of Alabama students are roughly the same as the general population. So I took that 13% of the students off because it's safe to assume that about 13% of those students, 13.92% of those students already got the virus and therefore are immune to it at least for the time being. So that being said, that reduced the number of eligible, oops, sorry, that reduced the number of eligible students by a significant amount, which means mathematically the absolute worst case scenario is that we lose nine students. And of course, if that did happen, and that's, that's assuming that literally every single student that is eligible that might potentially get the virus because they are, haven't already had it, that means that every single student would have to get infected with the virus with the current fatality rate to get nine students. Keep in mind, they're freaking out about 500 students getting it. We would have to have 10 times that amount. Well, almost 10 times somewhere between eight and 10, about eight to 10 times that number of students to get the virus to get even one single death. And so our worst case scenario is that nine students would die. And that of course would be tragic if it winds up happening. It would be tragic to lose any student. But the question is not, would we lose any students by having classes this fall because of coronavirus? It's, is the risk worth it? And this sounds cold and cruel, I know, but the truth is we make this decision literally every single day of our life. Stepping outside the front door in the morning is a risk. Heck, staying at home is a risk. You can die at home. Most accidents or, or fatalities do happen at home. That's where most people die, because where most people spend their time. All of life is a calculated risk. And so the question is not... Would any students potentially die from this? Because there is a possibility that that could potentially happen. The question is, how much of a risk is it? And how do we measure that against other risk that we're already accustomed to? Well, if we're looking at, again, stats for people ages 18 to 24, the 18 to 24 COVID deaths per 100,000 is 25.89. Pretty small when you're looking at a population of 100,000. The 18 to 24 automobile fatalities per 100,000 is 29.21, which would mean, if you're looking at the numbers, there is a 12.8, there's a difference of 12.8% in those, so you are 12.8% more likely to die in the car on the way to the university than you are to get coronavirus and die as a result of going to the University of Alabama. So if you're looking at a risk versus reward thing, if you are willing to get into a car 
and you're 18 to 24 years old, you should be willing to risk getting coronavirus. You shouldn't be holed up and quarantined in a room. All of life is a calculated risk, and this illustrates how we accept risk every single day that are actually more deadly than an 18 to 24 year old's odds of dying from the coronavirus. Now, let's look at, uh, let's go ahead and look at some more stats. The potential carrier students, if you adjust for the CDC, is 27,000, not the 33,000 we were looking at beforehand, 27,827. Now, why do I say it this way? Because literally every single stat that we've looked at beforehand ignores the adjustment for the CDC, which suggests that 10 times as many people actually have the virus than we think actually have it. So if you measure that out, and if you look at it and, and you know, basically do the math and adjust everything to assume that there are 10 times as many people that have the virus versus people that have died from it, these are the stats that you get. So if we assume that that is correct, then that means even more students that are attending the University of Alabama have it and are therefore immune. Therefore, the number of eligible students that might potentially become infected with it necessarily drops. And that number is 27,827. So we're already dealing with a lower risk just by adjusting it for how many students may potentially get the virus. Then you look at the fatality rate. Again, if you adjust it for the CDC, would actually be 0.026. That's how unlikely you are to die from this virus. And remember, this is if you already have the virus, not the general population. That means if you get the virus, your odds of actually dying from it are 1 in 38,613. It's extremely low. And that also means that our worst case scenario, if you adjust it again, because you remember originally our worst case scenario was nine students die. And that was based on how many students could potentially get it and also what the likelihood that they were going to pass if they did get it. So if you look at the actual worst case scenario, adjusting for the sampling rate that the CDC has advised people on, that means you actually get 0.72 deaths. In other words, we don't even get to a whole death there's a very realistic chance that even if we had no social distancing whatsoever, that everybody just threw caution to the wind, everybody did classes exactly the way that they normally did, that the worst case scenario in that one is that and every single person that is eligible to get the virus gets it, there's still a very good chance that not a single student dies. And by the way, we actually saw that play out at the beginning of the pandemic with Liberty University, which never shut down classes and did have several students that got the virus. Not all of them, obviously, because that's unrealistic and ridiculous. We're only using that for theoretical purposes to show the absolute worst case scenario. But if you're looking at that particular statistic and you're looking at how Liberty University handled it, well, they didn't lose a single life. And there's a good reason to believe that we could potentially have an entire school year normal with no social distancing, no safety measures whatsoever. I mean, they could literally have everybody come in and lick the same popsicle stick and make sure every single student got the virus, try to intentionally infect them, and there's still a good chance they don't lose a single student because of it. 
That's how undeadly this thing is for somebody in this age demographic. So the fact that CNN is worried about it and aghast at the fact that there's been such a rapid increase in college students in Tuscaloosa is just dumb. It is completely devoid of any kind of logic or reason. And just to be clear, I'm not saying be reckless. I'm not saying throw caution to the wind. I think you should take safety measures because, yes, the chances are low, but that doesn't mean that you need to help it along. If there's something you can do that's easy and simple and within the realm of reason to sort of mitigate that risk, then yeah, why not? I mean, your odds of dying in a car accident are pretty darn low, too. Doesn't mean you shouldn't wear a seatbelt. That's the behavior of a reasonable person. But what I am saying is this idea that we need to live in fear and the slightest chance of anything going wrong, the slightest chance of cases going up, that we need to cancel football season and cancel, uni cancel university and send everybody back home. First of all, that's dumb just because, again, that would just spread the virus. But second of all, that's the wrong mindset to have. You are grossly overreacting to the level of risk that this thing actually poses to college students. And unfortunately, in the age of coronavirus, overreaction has become the norm. All right, so we've actually got a really cool segment coming up because uh, I know that this is a little bit different, but I secured an interview that I think is going to surprise everybody. I got an interview with Hurricane Laura. Yes, the hurricane that is coming in that it made landfall in Louisiana this morning. I actually got an interview with the hurricane. That is coming up in just a second on Tactics. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. And welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics. And I know that the reason that a lot of you watch this show is because we do get a lot of really great exclusives, especially when it pertains to local news here in the state of Alabama and in the South in particular. And we have a fantastic exclusive for you right now. I know that people are going to be saying for, for decades now, how did Caleb land this interview? Uh, this is an amazing one. You know the situation that's going on right now in the Gulf where we've got a couple of square dancing hurricanes coming in pretty soon. One of them is Hurricane Laura, and it just so happens that I happen to know Hurricane Laura, and I was able to secure an interview with the hurricane, so we go live now to the Gulf. Hurricane Laura has agreed to an interview. Let's bring her on. Thanks, Laura, for agreeing to do this uh, interview with me. Yeah, yeah, I've been really busy, but, you know, I can take a few minutes for you. Yeah, this is a big couple of days for you. You've had a, a very busy schedule, been been up to a lot of stuff. Well, you know, it's been a long time coming. We've been planning it for a while, and, you know, finally came. It's like Christmas, man. So so this was premeditated. You've actually been planning this for some time, is what you're saying. Yeah, Rona and I have been planning this for years, but Obama <laughs> finally gave us the clearance. So, so he's controlling everything with the weather control machine, I take it, then? Yeah, we've just been talking about it. I was just like, you know, I'll hide out till you tell me it's time to come, and here I am. Huh, well, we've confirmed a conspiracy theory that people have been believing since, like, what? Did that surface in, like, 2011, I think, that Obama had some kind of magic weather machine? You know, it's only for Kenyans. <laughs> All right, so I do have some questions for you, Hurricane Laura. I hear that you're a rapid intensification hurricane, which means that you went from a tropical storm with winds of about 65 miles per hour to a full-on Category 3 hurricane in only, uh, with 
115 mile per hour winds in less than a day. So my real question is, how did you grow so fast? What allowed you to go through that rapid intensification that we're hearing so much about? Carbs. Do what? Carbs. Carbs. Okay, so carbs is what allowed you to do that. What kinds of carbs? Complex carbs, whole wheat? What are you eating there? Texas Roadhouse Rolls. <laughs> well, if you add the... The cinnamon sugar butter, I mean, and I eat about five or six of them every time I go there. So I can see how that would, I mean, that, that causes me to rapidly intensify from time to time. So I understand that. Uh, all that butter on there. So here's one thing that kind of interested me. Why Louisiana? What'd they ever do to you? Why did you choose Louisiana to go to? Well, frankly, Kale, they canceled Mardi Gras due to Rona, and I just didn't think that was okay. Really? Because I heard they continued and did uh, Mardi Gras anyway, and that was one of the reasons they had one of those super early spikes. And they didn't invite me? That's it. I'm going <laughs> Category 5 on them. You're going Category 5. All right. Are you leaving Louisiana anytime soon? And if so, are you planning to go somewhere else? Eh, I'll probably stay until I run out of beignets. I'll go to Texas and get some brisket. Uh, the beignets will uh, cause some rapid intensification quicker than the brisket's going to do that. I'll tell you that right now. I want what I want. Uh, it, you talk about some rapid intensification, though, in Texas. Whataburger, that would be the way to go. Ooh, I'll try that next. Yeah, I love the Whataburger. So, uh, I understand that you are identifying, and, and I'm getting this from very reliable sources, that you are now referring to yourself as a mostly peaceful hurricane. Yeah, um, I like to think of myself as a peaceful protester. I know people think that that's not quite right, but frankly, destroying people is only about like 3% of what I do. Oh, so, I see. Yes. Well, I guess it's mostly, you're a mostly peaceful hurricane then. Mm -hmm. The proper, I just, you know. So like all the property damage, broken stores, street fronts, that's just, that, that's like the BLM protest. You're just, you're a mostly peaceful hurricane. Hey, hey, that's on them, okay? I mean, the property damage, I'm just expressing myself. Even the hurricane doesn't want to be associated with Antifa and Black Lives Matter. All right. Yeah, I'm not part of that life. So you kind of hinted at this when you first came on, and I just wanted to confirm this. Is it accurate to say that you have been colluding with the coronavirus and planning all of this for a long time? Oh, yeah, yeah, we totally... We totally tight. We are best friends. And we're best friends with Obama, too. So we've been planning this since eh, we found out Trump was going to take office. So good four years. I see. You know, he was just waiting for 2020. So that that's your, that's your plan, I'm guessing, that you're going to force everybody to stay indoors because of the wind and the rain, and then the coronavirus can spread more easily? Is that how y'all work together? Yeah, just wait till you make my friend mail-in voting. <laughs> All right, well, hopefully it, it doesn't come to that, at least no time soon. But uh, I do appreciate you being willing to come on. I know that you've got a very tight schedule, and it's not easy for a storm front to make a, a Zoom call. But, you know, I appreciate you going out of your way to help me out with that. Thank you so much for agreeing to join the program. Glad to help anytime. All right, that's See her. you next election year. <laughs> next election year. Okay, great. They are working together. All right, that was Hurricane Laura. Thank you so much for uh, her being generous with her time. We'll be back in just a minute on Tactics. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. That was stupid. I know it was stupid. 
really stupid. Hey, I just said it was stupid. And for today's Daily Dose of Stupid, honestly, it's going to be a big win today because it's it's almost, I debated as to whether or not to make this two Daily Doses of Stupid, but they, they kind of keep with the same theme even though they run with two completely different stories. And so the Daily Dose of Stupid today is the media and the reaction to the shooting. So as I'm sure that most of you are aware by this point, and I'm going to give you a few new details because we do have new details coming out, but... Overall, just looking at the Jacob Blake shooting and the Trayford uh, Pel uh, Pellernin, Pellernin, I think is the way to say it, shooting. So with both of those, the media's reaction has just been absolutely ridiculous, rising to the level of stupid, which is why they're featured here. So just to give you a little context, I, I know that you may have seen it already, and I do want to give you a warning here because there is some graphic content here. So if you have small kids around, maybe avert your eyes or, or turn the video off at least for as long as this is going to be. This is the Jacob Blake shooting that happened in Kenosha, Wisconsin. So we're going to go ahead and watch that just to give you a little background on this. And by the way, it's important to note, this particular video includes two angles. So we had the original one, that you, the one that everybody's seen. This new angle has only surfaced today. And so you see the, the same events unfolding, and they're more or less synced up with the time from the, the back end of the car. And so you can see the new angle here. CJ, CJ. You are bogus. So you see that Blake is down by the, the rear tire. And the police have him down, they're wrestling with him. He gets away, walks around to the other side of the car. He's going in, the police are telling him don't, don't. And they shoot him right here fire about what seems to be about six or seven shots wow. and that's how the whole thing unfolds now i'm going to show it to you one more time so again you see him there they said that the police according to the newest information that they tased him i guess that's the reason he was on the ground but apparently he shook it off really quick because you can see him coming around the side of the, the car right there and the police are trying to get to him they're telling him to stop they grab him he goes for it anyway and that's when they fire right then. Wow. So, so a couple things on, on this shooting, and because there's been so much said about it, this was the correct thing to do. I know that that's uncomfortable, and I know that just like, unfortunately, police officers doing their job is very often uncomfortable to watch. A person did lose their life, and so I understand why people, you know, have a, a completely legitimate reaction to that to be averse to it, because... You're supposed to, when you see somebody lose their life, even if they're a terrible person and they were losing their life in a justified manner, that's still a very, very difficult and even traumatic thing to watch. I, I get that. I totally do. But the police officers acted 100% correctly here. When you're talking about police, because one of the big talking points that I've seen is, well, they shot him in the back. Well, yes, they shot him in the back. But he was reaching into his vehicle, and the police have no idea what is inside his vehicle. It could be a pack of gum. It could be a pack of mints. It could also be a knife, or a rifle, or a shotgun, or a pistol, or a bomb. I mean, there is no telling what it is, and therefore, the unknown being around this. Now, if you are just, you know, reaching into your pocket, or reaching into your purse, or something like that, and you've had no interaction with the police, and the police just shot you... Obviously, that would be ridiculous. 
When you have police officers that have already told you to get down, they've already tased you when you shook it off, and they've already tried to grab you, tell you to stop, warned you to stop, yelled at you to stop, have their guns trained on you, you refuse to stop, and then you turn around and reach into a space that they can't see, I'm sorry, but at that point, you have forfeited your own life because of your own stupidity. If they're telling you to freeze over and over again, and you refuse to, you get up, you walk around a car, reach in regardless of the police's orders, and reach into a space that they cannot see, then yes, they are 100% justified in ending your life. That's not a negotiable thing. And I had people that were going back and forth with me on this were saying, well, you know, they should, have, they should have to wait until they know for a fact that they're in danger. I'm sorry, but there's not a police officer in the world that has reflexes superhuman enough to see somebody produce a gun, identify it as a gun. Their brain has to go through, okay, that's a gun, now it's okay for me to fire. If that happens, you're looking at a dead cop right there. Because, and anybody that has studied reaction times will tell you this, there is just no way a normal human being can take the time and the cognitive, you know, it's not long, but it is some time. There is a process there that if they're reaching into their car, that he has the time to wait, identify the object that he is getting and then and only then fire back. And by the way, this is something that happens to police officers, thankfully not on a super regular basis, but occasionally when they do take their time, when they don't fire, when they see somebody reaching into a space that they can't see, sometimes it does result in police officers getting hurt. And there's footage of this all over the internet that you can look up at any time that you want to. And we now know a lot of the details surrounding this that aren't evident from the video. Now, frankly, just from the video, there's enough evidence to show that the police officers were acting in the correct manner, but even if you ignore the video, or I shouldn't say ignore the video, even if you were, even if you were just looking at the video, that's enough. But now we have more details that give us even more insight into where the police officers' heads were. So first of all, we know for a fact that this was not a case of police officers just stopping some random black person because he was black, which is the way that the media often tries to cast this. It turns out that this person was called in and the police officers were called in because he stole a person's keys. So he went into a house that he wasn't supposed to be in, stole keys that were not his, and the police officers responded to that accordingly. And during this call, and we know this because we now have the audio from this call, the dispatch there that is working with the police officer not only informs them that this person is stealing their keys, but they have an active warrant out for their arrest, that this person has a rap sheet, and it is a person that is a sexual offender, and so they know all of these things going in. This is a person that has a history of violence, a history of assault, has a history of attacking police officers. And normally when we're talking about a rap sheet in one of these situations, even though it's interesting and it may shed some light on why the person acted the way that they did towards the cops, it doesn't really lend any credence to the reason that the police officers reacted the way that they did to the suspect. In this case, it does, because we know that they already knew that. For example, when we're talking about different cases where this has taken place and somebody will say, well, the guy was a drug dealer. 
okay, well, maybe he was, but the cops didn't know that, so you cannot factor that into their decision-making process. In this case, we actually can because they did know that ahead of time. That's the difference in this and most of the cases that we've talked about sort of along these same lines in the past. The police officers did know that this guy had a history of attacking police officers, which gave them even more reason and more justification to be on edge when he starts ignoring their orders, walking around a, a car, and digging into an unknown space. And here's the other thing, too. If these were a bunch of evil racist police officers that were just bloodthirsty and dying to kill a black person... Why didn't they shoot him when he was down on the ground? If the goal is to kill this guy, they had the perfect opportunity to do it right then and there. Do you really think these police officers, if they just wanted to go out and kill a black man, first of all, that they would just do it in broad daylight in a neighborhood where there's all kinds of people around and there's cameras trained on them? If they were really wanting to do this and they were some kind of, you know, closet clan members or something like that, they wouldn't do it here. And so when they do go around, you'll notice that the, they only start using lethal force when their lives are in danger, when he is putting his hand into the car. And by the way, even though we didn't know this earlier, uh, we know that his kids are in the car. Uh, well, I don't know if they're his kids or just kids in general, but kids that are somehow affiliated with him are in the vehicle at the time. What if he wasn't going for a weapon at all? What if he was just going to jump into the car and drive off? Okay, well, this guy's also somebody that has been arrested before for sexual assault. Somebody that we know, at least there's, there's a decent probability, much higher than the average person, that if he does want to drive off, he would drive off with kids that he could potentially abduct and then abuse. And so even if he wasn't reaching for a weapon, the idea that the cops should just let this guy drive off is absurd. But we tur it turns out, based on the new information that we have, that this guy actually did have a knife. And where was the knife found? In the floorboard of the driver's side of this car, exactly where he was reaching. Now, do I know for a fact that he was reaching for the knife? No. But it does seem really odd that a guy with a history of attacking police officers walks around, ignores their orders, reaches into the one place in the car that happens to have a weapon. That seems like an awful big coincidence if he's not reaching for the weapon. And the police officer ought not have to wait to have his arm slashed to be able to defend himself. If he sees a guy like this especially, but, I mean, any person, it would be justified, but especially a guy that he knows has a history of attacking police officers reaching into a vehicle like this, then yes, he absolutely has the right to use lethal force at that moment because if he doesn't, then his life is likely to be taken from him. And as sad as it is, I mean, yes, this guy didn't do, he is the, he's paralyzed as the result of his own bad decisions. That is accurate. But it is, of course, sad that he is paralyzed now. It's sad that this situation arose. But it's not nearly as sad as if this situation had played out to where this guy either abducted these kids and hurt them or he had killed the police officer. It's sad, but it's not as sad. If I have to choose between this guy getting hurt 
and an innocent person getting hurt, obviously the better ending to that story is him being the one that got hurt, not the innocent parties here. And that's why this was a justified shooting. Because any of those other endings are very much likely if the police officer doesn't try to end his life here. And I'm glad that his life wasn't ended. I'm glad that he's only paralyzed. But he had to figure out a way to stop him at this point because those other scenarios could very likely play out if he did not do that. Now, since we've learned that he had a knife, what's really hilarious is watching the media try to bend over backwards and explain even that away. So you can check this out. This is a headline from the, uh, I, be I believe it's the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. So this is one of the local newspapers. So you can say here, this is the headline, Jacob Blake had a knife in the car, but was otherwise unarmed. Wisconsin DOJ says as it releases the name of Kenosha officer who shot him in the back. So there's two things. First of all, shot him in the back, removes all of the context, removes everything that we've just talked about. And then the second half of that is, it says he's otherwise unarmed. Okay, well, then he's not unarmed. Because remember that the media kept pushing this narrative over and over again. Well, an, un an unarmed black person. Well, frankly, it doesn't matter if they're unarmed if they did something that endangered the police officer. Uh, I don't want to go case by case through all of the different scenarios where we talked about this, but having an unarmed person shot by police officers is very, very rare, regardless of their color. But nonetheless, if they're going to run with this narrative of unarmed, and that's going to be the standard, well, now all of a sudden they've got a guy who is armed, and they're saying, well, he's otherwise unarmed. Uh, yeah, otherwise unarmed is not a thing. It's like, well, he's holding a bazooka, but he's otherwise unarmed. Well, he's flying in an F-35, but he's otherwise unarmed. Other than that big one thing, it would be like saying with, uh, well, Caleb Cockwit, he's not a talk show host. I mean, yeah, he, he does the tactic show, but he's otherwise not a talk show host. Okay, well, then what you just said makes me a talk show host. <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. He's like, well, she's not pregnant. She, she, she is pregnant, and she does have a baby growing inside her, but other than that, she's not pregnant. Well, th then she's pregnant. Like... Trying to play games with this is just hilarious, and watching the media try to do backflips and, you know, the level of mental gymnastics they have to engage in to try to justify that this was a shooting that they should be angry about or that the cop acted in some way that was incorrect. Even they realize that they don't really have a leg to stand on, and they're just sort of grasping for straws at this point. But they're not the only ones that did this. In the reaction to the shooting, of course, there were several days of protest in the city of Kenosha, which involved, by the way, burning churches, which I found pretty ironic as well. The very uh, organization, Black Lives Matter, that claims that they see a Klansman basic, basically behind every bush are now engaging in Klan-like behavior. I mean, they've been doing it for a while with the whole race war thing and thinking that race is the single most important thing. I mean, in that way, they've always been like the Klan. Oh, well, and the affiliation to the Democrat Party as well. Uh, even though there's a slightly more open than their affiliation, the Democrats' affiliation to the Klan was. Only slightly, though. But on the other side of this, now they're also engaging in another time-honored practice of the Ku Klux Klan, burning down churches. Which also leads me to believe that it doesn't really have a whole lot to do with black lives, because disproportionately, black people care an awful lot more about church on average, than most people in other racial demographics. I mean, it's just a simple fact. 
And the fact that there are people out there burning churches shows that those people really aren't all that concerned with black lives or what is important to black people. But nonetheless, I digress on that. Here is a, this is, I kind of, yes, it's infuriating, but I laugh to hide the frustration. This is a, a, Kai, a Kiosh from CNN, um, uh, Ki, the Chiron. Yeah, the Chiron from CNN. So you can see there the picture of the CNN reporter there doing his report. There's a giant blaze behind him and, uh, you know, burned out cars or whatever. And I love the, the Kylon here. Fiery but mostly peaceful protest after police shooting. Yeah, just like the whole thing with otherwise unarmed, that's not a mostly peaceful protest. There's no such thing as a mostly peaceful protest. If it's a mostly peaceful protest, then it is by definition a violent one. If it's a mostly peaceful protest, then it is by definition a riot. It is either a peaceful protest or a not peaceful protest. And this would be an example of a not peaceful protest. <laughs> just like if I have a bazooka in my hand, I'm not otherwise unarmed. I'm just armed. That's the way that this works. And by the way, I do say that it's hilarious watching CNN do these kind of backflips. And uh, there were it does lead to some fantastic memes. So here was one that I saw that was sort of a play off of this. You can, see, you can see the Titanic mind of Ocean Liner's first voyage, mostly successful. And I mean, that's true. Because let's say, for example, that uh, you have a guy that woke up in the morning, went to work, had a pretty normal day, didn't bother anybody, and uh, then goes home and murders his wife and three kids. Okay, well, that guy had a mostly peaceful day. He probably only spent like, you know, 10, 20 minutes killing his family. But that's really not the point. He's not a mostly peaceful person, and he didn't have a mostly peaceful day if he murdered his family at the end of it. Like, yes, the majority of it was peaceful, but that is kind of, if you're saying that, it's very clear you're trying to gloss over and ignore the most important, most obvious fact of what's going on here. That's not a mostly peaceful day. It's a violent day. Just like the, the, the protests are not mostly peaceful protests, they're just violent riots. That's all that it is here, and the media is trying to carry the water for it. Um, <laughs> with the city burning behind him, though, it does remind me of that gif of like the dog that he's sitting there with the coffee mug with the entire house burning down around him. He's like, yeah, this is fine. That <laughs> CNN just did the live-action version <laughs> of that gif. Anyway, so that was one shooting that we had, and of course... There have been protesters over the uh, Trayford Pellerin uh, shooting, and I understand that most of these shootings look bad without context or without somebody really looking through it. Like, my immediate reaction, too, upon seeing the footage before I watched through it about three or four times uh, with the Jacob Blake thing was, whoa, you know, because it is a jarring thing to watch somebody lose their life even when it happens to be justified. And I can understand how somebody that didn't understand that you can't just ignore police officer instructions and reach into wherever the heck that you're reaching into, that that might, you know, have the police officer and give him just cause to end your life. I can get how maybe the average person wouldn't put two and two together on that. And other videos like that, too, I can understand how without context or without understanding police procedure, how you could think that that's a really bad thing. This one I don't understand at all. I don't understand how any logical person with a functioning brain can watch this video and not think that the police were 100% in the right on this one. 
And this is the uh, the video of uh, Trayford Pellerin and uh, what happened with his shooting. Yeah. He got a knife. That man got a knife. They gonna shoot him. No, we got to wait. Now watch, the, the police car wait. tries to block no, his path there. And then he keeps going, the and keeps going, police telling him to stop, drawing their weapons, telling him to stop, telling him to stop. He, he has his hand on the door, then they open fire. Oh my god! Oh my god! So, now they've shot him. Oh my god! Down on they the ground. They just shot this man! Alright, now let's watch it again. He See, there he is, knife. holding a knife. That man got a knife! Even the people that are filming him. realize that he has no, a knife. He he's walking toward, I mean, he's walking very quickly and, and with purpose. They try to block him. All the Get police the are out ground. there. They tasing him. He not even doing nothing. See, they tased him. He didn't do he anything to him. And only when he puts his hand oh on the door to enter the gas station do they open oh fire on him. They know that he's got a weapon. They just shot this man. And so this is what's so crazy to me. Who's in that gas station? Anybody that's saying that the police officers should not have done this, they're not thinking about that. Because this is a person that they don't have to wonder if he's dangerous. They know he's dangerous. They see him with a weapon. That alone, especially the way that he's reacting and refusing to follow instructions, they could have, at least by the book, dropped him right then and there. Why didn't they do it? Because they're trying to keep the guy alive. That's why they tried to tase him. That's why they tried to subdue him. Uh, subdue him. That's why they tried to block his path with the police car. Nothing they did was working. Nothing they did was keeping this guy from hurting somebody else. And they waited as long as they could. They showed restraint. Only when he's about to enter the gas station where there are people inside did they start unloading on him. And we saw exactly the same thing with the Jacob Blake shooting. It's only when he starts posing a danger to the police officers and other people, and they have no recourse left, they've already tried every other tactic that they have, it's only then that they start opening fire on him. They are showing restraint. They don't want to do this. Do you think that even if there were a cop that were legitimately a white supremacist and a racist who wanted to kill a black person, do you really think he would be doing it in this environment? Really? He would be waiting until... America is burning in race riots before he would start doing that? I mean, you would think if anything else, he'd be holding off if that were actually his goal. So the idea that this is somehow racially driven is just ridiculous. And I don't see how any logical person can watch this and not understand that this is a, a good shoot. I mean, normally... And this really does go to show how far the Overton window has moved. Normally, and we saw this with several cases back in 2015, that the media would see a story like this, they might overreact, but with one that's this clear-cut, they usually just kind of let it fizzle out. They might report on it, they might talk about it, and then they just let it die. The media is still pushing this one. Now, granted, they backed off a little bit because it hasn't gained a lot of traction, but the media would usually strategically just kind of let these things fizzle out if it didn't really help their cause or push their narrative. And yet there's a lot of people on the left that are using this when there's people protesting all of this that are trying to use this as an example of some kind of police brutality. 
which does go to show, in both of these cases, the only thing that matters is the skin color of the person committing the crime and getting shot, and the person that is pulling the trigger. That is the only thing that matters to them. It doesn't matter that he's putting himself in danger. It doesn't matter that he's putting other people in danger. It doesn't matter that this guy with a knife could have easily walked into this gas station and killed anybody inside, killed several people. I, what, what else were the police supposed to do? And here's something that I think about. And I think the reason that trying to play this one up is going to uh, be a real mistake if the media continues to try to do that. Who doesn't go into gas stations? I mean, you and your kids could have very easily been in this same gas station. And if that had happened and the police officers, because of the political correct garbage, had refused to shoot this guy even though he had a knife and was clearly headed into this place, if all of that had happened, and this guy wound up killing you or your kid or anybody or the clerk or anybody else that was in there, those police officers would have neglected their duty to protect innocent people. You can't have that. At one point, my family actually ran a gas station. My dad's side of the family. It was when he was a kid. I never was around at this point in their life. But this could have very easily turned into a situation where this guy has a knife to this guy's neck, the clerk in there, as a hostage. Or killed other people. I mean, if this kind of stuff was allowed to go on, then if it had happened at my family's gas station, I might not be here because he could have killed my dad. And I think the average person is going to look at this because who doesn't go to gas stations? They're going to look at this and go, if the cops hadn't done what they did, I might not be here. And that's why I think this particular one especially is not only, I mean, it's, it's very clear-cut that the police acted correctly, but even more so, I think even the average person that even may be pretty sympathetic to the Black Lives Matter movement and not know about all the other stuff that they're engaged in that, that might have even marched with Black Lives Matter, watches this and goes, yeah, they, I don't know what else the cops would have done. They, they absolutely acted the way that they should have. I think the average reasonable person absolutely does this. But unfortunately, there's a lot of unreasonable people that don't think that the only thing that does matter to them is the color of the skin of the people involved. And you can sort of see this illustrated by some of the people that were actually protesting, of all things, this particular shooting at the Shell Station where it took place there in Louisiana. So uh, this, is a, this is footage of them protesting and then a guy that just wants to go get gas. So you can check this out. So you see there, he's driving in there with his truck, and they've created a, a chain, and they're trying to keep the guy from going in. Now, I want you to notice that he's on the wrong side of the road. So he didn't make a right-hand turn into this thing. He made a left-hand turn. And they're obstructing traffic right now. There was a truck that actually had to swerve to go around him in the other lane. So now they're beating his truck. And then he tries to get out and get gas and they're blocking his pump and aren't letting him, you know, put his card in the pump and, and all of that. Now they're yelling at him. So you see all of that. So first of all, my one of my first thoughts is it's just like the when they burned down the Wendy's that Richard Brooks was shot at. Well, I didn't think that the cops acted inappropriately at that particular juncture either. However, 
what did Wendy's do? And in this case, Shell didn't even call the cops. At least in the Wendy's case, the Shell or the, the Wendy's people did call the police, I believe. It may have been somebody else, I don't know. But the Shell had nothing to do with this. That just happened to be the station that this person was trying to go into to either secure a hostage or something. And so I don't understand why they're trying to obstruct the Shell's business, calling the Shell station racist, and trying to keep... The, I mean, for all I know, the Shell station is owned by somebody that's not even white. May even be a black guy, I don't know. But the Shell station didn't do anything wrong, so why are you keeping them from getting business? That doesn't make any sense at all. And I really do feel for whoever the owner of this particular Shell station is. But the second part of that is they were endangering the public. Because you saw that this guy is making a left-hand turn. He's not making a right-hand turn. This was uh, something that he had to turn across traffic to get into, and then all of a sudden they come up and block his path. Well, at that point, they're not only obstructing the person from getting into the Shell station, which is private property, and you can't do that. Uh, th there are laws against that in, to my knowledge, all 50 states. You can't actively uh, keep go onto private property and keep a person from selling their product. It's not a thing that you are allowed to do legally. And so I don't know why the police weren't there to disperse that crowd as well. But nonetheless, he's turning against traffic. They block his path in. And then uh, when he tries to get in, there are trucks and cars having to drive around him because he can't get into the station because the back end of his truck is actually hanging out in the middle of the road. And so it's very possible that this guy didn't even see that there was a protest going on, didn't even see that there were people there, just takes a left-hand turn to the shell station that he always does, and then all of a sudden all these people just start showing up and trying to block his path in. I don't know if that's what happened or not. Maybe it was intentional, maybe he knew there was a protest going on. But I don't know about you, but I probably wouldn't have known that there even was a protest going on or assumed that there was before I just took a left-hand turn into the gas station that I normally stop at. And so it's just ridiculous. But what's even worse, and this is where the, the Daily Dose of Stupid gets real thick, uh, the Daily Dose of Stupid gets really, really prominent is in the protesters' reaction to him driving in and, and finally going through. And you'll also notice that in that video that we played, he doesn't like try to plow through them or anything. He stops and then just kind of turns his creep feature on, takes his foot off the brake and sort of coasts in, even though they're beating on his car. Now... The second they started beating on my truck, you're going to get a shotgun in your face. And I'm not saying that to brag. I'm not saying that as, because, uh, as a threat or that I want to use it. I'm actually saying that because it's a deterrent because I want you to get the heck off my truck. Because I don't want you to get hurt. I don't want you to accidentally like wind up under my truck or something like that. The second that you start beating on my car, you're getting a shotgun in your face. Um, that's that, I mean, that's just like defending your own house. In fact, several states have a castle doctrine that extends to your car. And so the second that you start beating on my car, that's what's going to happen to you. And that's frankly what should have happened in this case as well. This is the protesters reacting to the guy that drove through. This man took his vehicle and tried to pass it through a peaceful protest and tried to kill us. That's exactly what happened. This is why when we tried to tell you we're trying to keep this... 
city called, and this is what is happening a right racist, now. This Josh Gillen and friends, folks, that's they it. will run their car that's into it. you, act like they didn't do anything wrong. You want to talk about inciting a riot? And look at that's that's that All right, so this guy apparently is a racist and a domestic terrorist that showed up just to kill people and to cause destruction. That's what you heard from that. When I saw this clip, I thought, man, why does this guy not have a primetime slot on CNN? Because this is what CNN does all the time. And I know I'm harping pretty hard on CNN today, but they, they deserve it this week. I'm sorry. It's, it's been awful all week. So this is just what Don Lemon and, and Chris Cuomo do all the time. You'll see an event take place They'll tell you the exact opposite of what happened with a straight face and pretend as though you need to be outraged by it because they're outraged by it. How does this guy not have a CNN show? I'm genuinely asking because uh, that just seems to me like exactly what Don Lemon does every freaking single night. And when it comes to this guy, he's saying, well, this guy wanted, to, he tried to kill us. Well, if he was trying to kill you, he did a really, really, really lousy job. You've got a chain of people in front of you. And you have, I believe, an F-150. So this is a half-ton truck. If he wanted to kill people, all he would have had to have done is pump the gas. He wouldn't even have to pump it all that hard. If his intention was to harm people, then why did he turn on his creep function and just kind of slide into the spot? Because if you're trying to kill people, that's, and frankly, legally, you even have the right to do that if you, your car gets mobbed like that because you're in fear of your life. He even had a legal excuse to do that and still didn't do it. I don't know if he knew about all the intricacies of the legal system there. Not that I'm a lawyer, you know. But my point in all of that is, if he's some kind of racist that just wanted to kill black people and he, uh, the, the whole point was to do harm and to hurt people, he did a really, really lousy, lousy job of it. He's very bad at it. Because he had a perfect opportunity there and just let it pass and then let it pass again and then let it pass again. If this guy is some kind of racist or domestic terrorist, man, does he suck at it. And what's hilarious to me is like, he's trying to interrupt a peaceful protest. Um, no, I think you could make the case that it's maybe violent or sorry, not violent because I didn't see them actually harming anybody. But first of all, they were pounding on someone's private property. That automatically means that it is violent because you are potentially causing property damage. And then the second half of that is it's not a peaceful protest if you're blocking infrastructure, in this case a road, which is illegal. And it's also not a peaceful protest if you are obstructing business of, on private property. So there's three things right there that make his claim of it being a peaceful protest completely incorrect. Which again, is what Don Lemon and Chris Cuomo do basically every single night. So when you ask yourself, where do they learn this kind of stuff? Where do they think that it's okay to just uh, picket in front of a private business and keep them from getting business and obstruct roads and beat on people's private property? They learn it from the media. The media shows this stuff. It shows justification for it. It gives excuses for it. It says that this is okay, that we should be supporting it, or that at the very least we should be sympathetic and understand it. And then they use the exact same media's tactics trying to completely misconstrue what just happened, what you just saw with your own eyeballs. That you're saying the exact opposite of what just happened happened. 
They learned all this from the media. Now, I'm not saying that the media is the only source or they're the only reason that this kind of insanity and lawlessness has taken place. But you can draw a pretty strong correlation between their tactics, which means that they have been influenced by them at least to some degree. I'm sorry, media, but this is your Frankenstein monster, and we all know that you're not going to take responsibility for it. But this is why, even though I don't like it when Donald Trump and Trump supporters refer to the media as the enemy of the people, just because I don't think it's helpful and it's not productive, I understand why. Because they inspire nutcases like this and then condone their behavior when they break the law. I mean, I understand the reason that people think of them as the enemy of the people based on things like this. You can see where that mentality comes from. Let's go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. Chaplain's Report today does come from the book of 1 Samuel. We'll be continuing our series there. And remember that this story is directly after King David has been anointed. Of course, he's not king yet. He just now got anointed by the prophet Samuel. And so we're going to see sort of the fallout and the reaction to that. And that takes place in 1 Samuel 16, verses 14 through 18, which reads, Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you, let them seek a man who is a skillful player on the harp, and it shall come about when an evil spirit from God is on you, that he shall play the harp with his hand, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me now a man who can play well, and bring him to me. Then one of the young men said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is a skillful musician and a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. This is our first real introduction to David's character, because we do see his introduction at his anointing, but we don't really learn anything about David the person. We know a little bit about his appearance and what he looks like because that is somewhat addressed earlier, talking about him being handsome and with beautiful eyes and ruddy. That's the only description that we have. We don't know anything about his personality, his likes, his dislikes, any of that, until we get to this particular passage of Scripture. And the first thing that it introduces us, the first little bit of trivia that it gives to us so that we can sort of get an idea of who this character of David is, is that he is a handsome man that he is somebody that is thought of as a warrior, and he plays a harp. It's important to note that we do find out a little bit more about this warrior stuff later, when he talks about slaying a bear and slaying a lion. And of course, he hasn't fought Goliath yet, but that is to come to pass soon. But nonetheless, here we see the description of David as being a attractive person, a skilled musician, and a warrior. So, in a lot of ways, David is the warrior poet. That's sort of the archetype that he fits. 
He's the kind of guy that sort of like, you know, how samurais used to write haikus or you heard about cowboy poets. This is the kind of person that he is. And this tracks with what we learn from him for, throughout the rest of scripture, that he's not just a skilled musician. He actually writes music. Most of the book of Psalms was written by him. And then we also see that he is, is someone that is skilled in, in words, lyrics, poetry. He's uh, an expert at playing music, all of these things. He's apparently a good dancer, we learned, interestingly enough, later in the scripture. And all of these things sort of culminate in the fact that he is also a warrior. So he's not a sissy. This is a tough guy. And we see the skill that he has with a blade and, and with uh, just making war in general. And yet he has this really sort of sensitive side to him. And you can kind of see, just based on this personality and this description that we get, why David gets a lot of chicks. I mean, <laughs> that's probably not the most reverent way to put it, but he does. David has several wives. He's apparently somebody that's very attractive and alluring to women, and we kind of understand why. I mean, he's not only a tough guy that can handle himself and could protect a woman, but he's also very poetic. He has a poet's soul. He has that sort of artistic vibe about him. And we also learned that he's a good-looking man. So you can see here why women would just go nuts over somebody like King David. Uh, he's sort of the archetypal man in that sense. Somebody that balances the spiritual strength with the physical strength. And, and you know, the physical stuff is just, I guess, icing on the cake. But the question here is, it seems as though that God's providential spirit is working here. That seems to be pretty evident based on the scripture that it's so odd that Samuel would just happen to get a wicked spirit. And then the solution that his servants just happen to come up with is, let's find somebody that's really good at playing the harp. And then all of a sudden, David, who is going to be the next king and needs to be put in a position to where people could recognize him as the king, just happens to be a very skilled harp player. And he's the one that these people just happen to have come across and suggest to Saul that this be the guy for the job. Obviously, all of that is not a coincidence. Obviously, what has happened here is that God has worked in some way to make all of these events unfold. But we're not told exactly how in so many words. Did David acquire his musical talent from God? Well, the answer is yes, because we acquire all of our talents from God. But the question is, did he acquire it specifically for this cause? Probably. That's not necessarily something that directly correlates to being a good servant of God. You obviously don't have to be a good musician to do that. But God never leaves us ill-equipped. It seems very intentional that the things that God, that God has given David, the gifts that he possesses, just happen to be all the gifts that he happens to need to be in the right place at the right time to do God's will. And God does exactly the same thing for us as well. Now, to me, this is the more difficult question. It says God sent an evil spirit? That seems pretty out of God's character, doesn't it? Why would God send an evil spirit to torment Saul? Well, first of all, it's important to note that when it says evil, it doesn't even necessarily mean evil. And also, when it says sent, that could be read a couple of different ways. There are certain things that God allows to happen, but doesn't directly do. I mean, the reason that evil exists in the world is because there are certain things that God, though he might rather it not exist, allows for its existence. And so it's very possible that the evil spirit is being allowed 
to torment Saul by God for some for the reason that we're seeing here. We actually see this in other places as well, where God's providence works there in where uh, Jesus cast out spirits, or uh, when the apostles cast out spirits, and, and the entire town believes at one point because they cast an evil spirit that has the power of divination out of a girl, that kind of thing. And so we see that even though God doesn't control necessarily or force the evil spirit or send them directly, we can look at other passages of Scripture that show that God just kind of allows some of those things to take place to serve his purposes later. Now, it is a little different here because it seems as though, based on the Senate structure, that there was some activity on God's part, but that could very easily be read as just something that God allowed to happen. But if he had sent it, and it wouldn't necessarily be an evil spirit, but one that just, I guess, taunted Saul or made him feel bad or, or directly punished him in some way for what he's done, would that be unjustified? No. It's not uncommon at all for God to directly punish people. I mean, normally he does it passively, but we do see instances in the scripture where God punishes people in a very direct way. I don't think that it would be outside the realm of possibility for God to allow this to happen as a punishment for the sin that Saul has, got, has done to serve his purposes later in, in David becoming king. But my question about the blessings, kind of going back to that question for a second, is this something that God bestowed upon him? Or is it something that was enhanced? So did the Spirit, like, impart David's talent at the harp? Or did he just enhance the talent that was already there? Now, ultimately, all of that talent goes back to God at one point or another. But I guess I'm just asking when that talent took place and, and when God imparted it to him. Now, is it something that has a whole lot of deep spiritual meaning? Probably not. Because God being the source of it ultimately means that the spiritual message is going to be pretty much the same regardless. But it's just something that I personally find fascinating because everything that David had, whether it was his talent with a harp or a slingshot or at keeping sheep or at slaying giants or fighting people on the battlefield, ultimately that all came from God at some point anyway. But it's also important to note that even though that God gave David all of his talents, even though he was there with him every step of the way, even though he was the one that set all these events in motion to where he could eventually sit on the throne one day and fulfill God's will, David was not God's plaything. In fact, we see many instances over the course of time where that is not the case because David actually defies God and does things that God would not approve of. So David wasn't an automaton, even though he was a very good man and a man after God's own heart. And we also see that he's not just like some kind of favorite that God prods around like we see out of Greek mythology and how their gods dealt with people in their time. That God is a loving father that cares about David, cares about Saul, cares about everybody involved, but understands that for the most people to come to an understanding of him and his will, that the best course of action is to allow David to now be king because Saul has proven himself unworthy of that title. And so, yeah, God is going to use David, and he's going to use them in great and wonderful ways. I mean, eventually, this is the person whose seed will produce the Christ who saves all of humanity. 
But ultimately, it was because that's what David wanted. If David hadn't wanted that, God would have found somebody else. God's not manipulating David into doing these things. He's offering him help here and there along the way. But God's not forcing David into anything, nor is he trying to sort of, you know, coerce him. Ultimately, this had to be done because it's what David wanted. And God understands that. So yes, he gave him what he needed. He gave him aid when he needed it. So he gave him good equipment and he gave him help along the way, just like he does to us. But he's not going to force anybody into doing what he wants. God just doesn't do that. Which means that if we want to be one of God's people, it takes a great deal of intentionality on our part. Yes, he's going to be there to help. Yes, he's going to give us the things that we need to do that, but ultimately it comes down to do we want to be God's servant or not? David made the choice to be God's servant, to use his talents and his blessings and the things that God had given him in a good way. Occasionally, he used them incorrectly and was punished greatly for them, but ultimately those decisions remained with David, and the same is true today. If we want to be the kind of servant that David was, just like David, we have to be intentional with the blessings and opportunities and providence that God offers us along the way. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt, only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.